1: Welcome to What You Miss This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, the big chill came south to Texas and brought disastrous effects. Everything seemed to go wrong at once, with power plants unprepared for the weather, natural gas output malfunctioning, wind turbines freezing, and plenty of finger pointing. Millions of people plunged into frozen darkness, losing power and water amid record low temperatures in the greatest forced blackout in U.S. history. And what began as a power issue for Texas and a handful of other U.S. states quickly rippled out to a shock to the world's oil markets. More than four million barrels a day of output, almost 40% of the nation's crude production went offline. So our resident commodity expert, Alex Steele, joined us this week as we broke down the story. We got some policy perspective from Josiah Neely, the Texas director and resident senior fellow for energy at the R Street Institute, which is a libertarian think tank. Neely works to advance well-defined limited role for government in shaping policy, including electricity. And we asked what reforms could we
2: see to keep this from happening again? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think right now there's a lot of Uh, anger, justified anger out there, and uh, politicians are looking for someone to blame for these outages, and people are kind of shooting wildly at all sorts of different targets, Uh, everything from like different energy sources, renewables versus Mm -hmm. natural gas, the uh, cities, the generators, uh, ERCOT, and, you know, I think we do need to kind of calm down a little bit because we don't yet know all the facts of what exactly happened. And I think the picture will become clearer as, that, uh, yeah, as the data comes in over the, over the next few days, we'll be able to get a better sense of what exactly needs to change, if anything, uh, to the system.
3: Well, there are things that we do know, and that wind generation has grown uh, in Texas. We do know that there was a lot lot of outages at natural gas plants. We do know that Texas is an unregulated uh, power market that doesn't really have a ton of access outside. There are things that we know that we did know back in 2011 as well. In your early assessment, what are some things we can start talking about in terms of fixing?
2: Yeah, so that's a good question. I think the Texas electricity market... Typically, our peak demand periods are in the summer, and so our grid is kind of focused on, it's optimized for the summer. It's not optimized for when things are really cold, because we don't expect that. Uh, So a lot of, for example, our plants are not uh, properly weatherized, or the turbines are exposed, uh, so when it gets really cold, they can freeze. There's also uh, an inherent... Uh, competition between the use of gas for heating versus gas for electricity that you don't have in the summer but it is a an issue in the in the inner so i expect a lot of focus will be on weatherization uh there'll probably be some other things like that but you're talking about fuel mixes this is sort of uh the storm kind of hit all generation types everybody was struggling so I don't, I don't think that right. is probably going to be a big focus.
4: Uh, Josiah, I, I mean, but if the the issues to a large degree seem to be at the endpoints, you know, kind of getting uh, the end fuels to the consumer, I'm curious if there was a more homogenous energy market there. I mean, would the outcome of all this been any different?
2: I I doubt it. Uh, if you look, pretty much everybody across the board underestimated the potential for this sort of event, from the generators to the utilities to the uh ERCOT and the regulators if you look at their forecasts uh we're talking about uh significantly worse in terms of what the outages would be and what the what the generation capacity would be so i think that uh when everybody kind of makes the same mistake uh, i don't think that giving uh, a greater role for any particular or a centralized part of it would would have made a big difference In retrospect, obviously, everybody knows, you know, this is something you should have planned for.
1: So speaking of that, I mean, obviously, the Texas energy market, uh, highly competitive uh, consumer, uh, lots of consumer choice. But then also, I guess that makes things very cutthroat among the uh, delivery providers to be ultra efficient, ultra lean, ultra cheap. Is this ultimately the cost of what in, you know, the other 10 years, let's say this is a once a decade thing, is this essentially the inevitable price that we're, Texans are paying for, for what usually works well. And is there an argument that the dial needs to change such that people need to maybe pay more during the good times to reduce the sort of freak events that are rare, but do happen?
2: Yeah, so I there definitely is an argument there of how much uh, extra are you willing to pay uh, to avoid rare reliability events. In this case though, Uh, you do have, I think, somewhere around a third of Texas's capacity offline for weather-related reasons. And it's hard to imagine uh, any system that would be able to absorb uh, that blow just by having extra capacity. Hmm. Uh, So I don't, I I, kind of suspect that regardless of how our system had been set up, we would have had big problems. And of course, uh, other parts of the country have had problems too, although not to the extent that it is, that we've had it in Texas. Uh, So I kind of think that while that is an important argument, uh, I don't think that that is ultimately responsible for what happened with these outages. It's just, it got really, really cold.
1: Then we spoke about the federal response with Jason Bordoff, a professor of professional practice in international and public affairs at Columbia, and the founding director of the Center on Global Energy Policy. He previously held senior positions at the White House and on the National Economic Council. And we started by asking Jason how this will impact Biden's green energy plan when the dust settles.
5: Well, we need to, there's a lot of finger pointing going on now, it's fossil fuels fault, it's wind's fault. So we need to wait for a careful post-mortem to understand what went wrong here before casting blame, I think. But it's fair to say that what we're seeing is in temperatures this extreme, In a system not built to work in this kind of cold weather everything is failing we're seeing massive problems with coal with gas with wind Um, it's true wind output is way down relative to where it should be at this time of year it's also true most of the lost electricity generation that's forcing outages has come from gas and coal because pipelines and valves Mm -hmm. are freezing and coal piles and and are, are freezing so uh we also know that this kind of extreme weather Uh, hurricanes, uh, deep freezes, or or other things, we're going to see more of, not less of, uh, with climate change. So it's important to continue with an agenda that tries to move toward a low carbon uh, energy system. And at the same time, think about what we need to do to increase the reliability of the electricity system, because we know that a lower carbon energy system is probably one that's going to be more electrified for some parts of heating and for cars and things like that.
3: But Jason, specifically, it feels like storage for things like wind, solar, even natural gas, and things like recertifying your infrastructure are two key things. Do you think something like those two things can actually get done uh, through through federal policy?
5: Well, it's certainly the case that federal policy, with the right level of of, of, with with regulation, with the right financial incentives, with investments in technology, to make sure that batteries last not only a few hours but longer duration for days or potentially a week or two when you have extreme weather or the wind doesn't blow. That's part of federal policy. Federal policy and also state policy, right? Uh, The Texas grid is not is not overseen by FERC. uh, Also has a role to play in terms of, as as your prior panel was talking about, what kind of standards we want to set and how much we're willing to pay for it to achieve a different level, uh, different levels of reliability. We know that technology with government regulation to make it happen could help with uh, dialing down consumer usage. Demand response might have helped in this situation. The Texas grid is disconnected from grids around it, so it can't draw on those grids when it needs to. Maybe more transmission uh, could help Backup up uh, generators or just increasing capacity to handle extreme events. The question is, how much extra capacity do you, do you want to build? And that's a decision we need to make from the standpoint of regulation of the electricity markets. Jason, should nuclear be part of the answer? Hmm. Well, I think, I think we've had some of the nuclear plants affected as well, not just wind, coal, and gas. But when you look at what it takes to get to a net zero carbon electricity system, while we're using more electricity at the same time, again, for things like cars and heating and other things, we need all tools at our disposal. Uh, we certainly don't want to let existing nuclear power retire, and nuclear is struggling sometimes in the face of cheap renewables or cheap natural gas. It's expensive to build new nuclear, but when you look at it not just in the U.S., but on a global basis, you'll have more nuclear power as part of the solution as well if we want to really get to a net zero energy system.
4: And so with more states sort of moving to sort of, I guess, a more diversified uh, energy distribution model, I am curious as to uh, what they can do, I guess, in preparation for their grids for, I guess, any sort of extreme event like what we saw in Texas this week.
5: Well, a lot of it comes down to how the grid is regulated and what you're planning for. Right. The electricity system in Texas is designed for uh, peaks in the summer, not the winter. Uh, It's a highly decentralized system. The uh, Texas grid makes a choice, ERCOT, the regulator, to pay for energy, not capacity. This helps lower systems costs, but it also means there's a smaller margin held in reserve for extreme events. Uh, And as I said, the Texas grid is isolated from its neighbors, so you can draw more interconnections between different grids, because the more integrated you are into grids around you, the more resilient Uh, you can be. So those are a number of steps uh, that can be taken. And again, we need to think about all the risks that we're going to face in the face of rising electrification. Deep freeze is one of them. We obviously see in California challenges with wildfires. We're going to have hurricanes. Cybersecurity uh, is another one. We know there have been cyber hacks of the grid. All of these are going to become more important for regulators and policymakers to address as uh, electricity uh, use grows with electrification of more parts of the energy system.
0: You know success when you see it.
1: Now, while there was a lot of finger pointing at renewable energy amid the blackout, those same new forms of energy could provide a potential fail-safe, particularly when it comes to things like battery and storing renewable energy. Like most things, the story seems to come back to Tesla, which has a project in the UK using only six giant batteries to help power the UK grid mid-peak consumption. So we spoke about it with Brett Winton, the director of research at ARK Invest, which has $58.2 billion in assets under management, and has been very vocal about being bullish on Tesla for its fundamentals. So we started by asking Brett if he is worried about the electric vehicles putting too much strain on the grid as more consumers switch to EVs.
6: Uh, In short, no. So we've done work to look at energy demand that will be kind of ELICITED BY ELECTRIC VEHICLES, WE THINK THAT 40 MILLION ELECTRIC VEHICLES ARE GOING TO BE SOLD BY 2025. Uh, and, AND SO THERE'S GOING TO BE A LOT MORE ELECTRIC VEHICLES ENTERING THE MARKETPLACE. BUT BECAUSE OF THE EVEN DAILY FLUCTUATION IN POWER PRICE, where are uh, IN THE MIDDLE OF THE DAY WHEN EVERYBODY'S RUNNING THEIR AIR CONDITIONERS or in this case in Texas in the middle of the night, when everybody wishes they could be running their heaters, um, you end up with a higher demand than you do at other times during the day. And so what electric, typically it's middle of the day is is higher demand and and at night is lower demand. And so at night when electric vehicles are plugged into the grid, pulling power out of the grid is typically a slack time in Mm. demand. And so you actually don't need to introduce a lot of additional capacity to keep the electric vehicle fleet filled and operational, and in fact, because you're you're flattening the volatility that is otherwise in the energy demand cycle, you can end up with a net lower cost of energy because a, a baseload power that's operating at very high utilization rates, um, you can basically under you can levelize cost that power at a lower level than a plant that is only supposed to operate a few hours a day. Uh, and that's exactly the energy arbitrage opportunity that that a, a battery storage system also seeks to address. Mm-hmm. So you can think of the electric vehicle fleet as just like a, a very big distributed um, battery system that right. will be uh, so taking power out of the grid at night when otherwise you don't have uh, a lot of demand and then giving power back to the or running down those batteries during the day when you have a a lot of additional demand from air conditioning, et cetera.
4: When do we start to see a more expansion of those energy storage options beyond, of course, you know, whatever uh, car you have parked in your driveway?
6: Well, you can buy from Tesla and from others today a battery system for your home. And and typically that's spec for a certain number of hours, basically as as, um, both a replacement for buying a generator, you know, Potentially, you have charged up the battery, uh, and you lose power, and it kicks in and, and keeps you operating whatever you need to operate for some number of hours. Uh, the one of the convenience factors there is oftentimes like power outages are not multi-day power outages, like what's being experienced in, in Texas, but it's a couple of hours or, or it's you know a half day, and there the the battery system is the perfect kind of sweet spot to to you won't even notice that the power is out in your particular neighborhood because um, you just fail over into the battery system Mm. that if paired with solar, you've, you've filled up, you know, relatively inexpensively over time. Uh, And so you you can buy those today. Uh, The, the, I think there's an, AS YOU HAVE MORE of THOSE BATTERIES GET INSTALLED IN HOMES, THERE'S THE POTENTIAL FOR UTILITIES TO BE ABLE TO DRAW ON THAT RESOURCE IN TIMES OF EMERGENCY. SO I KNOW THERE'S Mm -hmm. A UTILITY IN VERMONT, I BELIEVE, THAT'S ACTUALLY SUBSIDIZING PURCHASE OF HOME BATTERIES um, WITH THE AGREEMENT THAT THEN THEY CAN PULL ON THAT POWER WHEN THEY NEED IT FROM THE HOMEOWNER. AND SO IT'S A WAY TO, IN SOME WAYS, TO CENTRALIZE the the power grid, where where you have more power distributed at the endpoints that then you can call upon when there is essentially a demand crisis or or, or supply-demand crisis. Mm.
3: Uh, Brett, this this crisis that we're seeing at the moment, you obviously invest across like five disruptive technologies at certain inflection points. Is this going to be the inflection point turning into a complete new demand? Because... uh, are we are we going to see new companies being born out of this crisis moment? Do you think that this is just Tesla's right for the picking, or are we going to see hmm. many new companies born out of this moment?
6: I mean, I think you'll see a, a number of new companies. Um, and apologies for my video, but I, I think you you'll see um, sorry you you'll see you'll certainly see interest from the consumer's perspective in 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 de-risking against this kind of possibility um, and. I, I THINK IT'S UNCLEAR um, TO WHAT DEGREE THE the yeah. RENEWABLE ENERGY SPACE AND THE BATTERY SPACE ITSELF IS AN INTERESTING SPACE FROM AN ULTIMATE CASH FLOW GENERATION PERSPECTIVE. THE, um, THE, uh, A, um, TESLA HAS A COMPETITIVE ADVANTAGE BECAUSE THEY NEED TO GENERATE mm. BATTERY CELLS FOR THEIR, um, FOR THEIR ELECTRIC VEHICLE MANUFACTURER ANYWAY, uh, AND uh, VEHICLE SALES is, IS A NATURALLY KIND OF not supply constant curve, and so to keep their battery manufacturing factory fully utilized, they need to fill in other places where they can sell batteries. Right. Whereas somebody who's going directly after the energy, um, and, and so Tesla should be able to price batteries more competitively than somebody who is only going after the, the renewable energy battery opportunity itself. Um, but it remains to be seen. There's a lot of players in the space. Um, it's really hard to convince a customer to spend thousands of dollars on something they don't need immediately. And so kind of trying to protect them against some future event. That's a hard sale Uh, kind of uh, crisis in Texas can catalyze a lot of interest and will probably lead to additional installs, both of solar and batteries into people's homes.
1: You know, it's a phenomenon arc you uh, investor uh, director of research. The big question is, what does it mean that you guys are so big? And I think last time Bloomberg looked over 25 companies or at least 25 companies in which you own at least 10 percent of the equity. How does that change the, the fundamental challenge for you now that you're not just a price taker, but in many ways a price setter, especially for some of the smaller names that you invest in?
6: Well, if you look across the five uh, disruptive technology platforms that we invest in. We believe that there's roughly 14 trillion dollars in attributable market cap. So uh, that's on AI, energy storage, uh, gene sequencing and editing, um, uh, robotics, and then cryptocurrency and blockchain. So some of that's not market cap; some of that's Bitcoin. Um, but but we believe there's 14 trillion dollars attributable. Uh, and. Uh, we actually think that's going to grow quite significantly over the next five years, and in our modeling, which we obviously could be wrong, uh, we think it's it's kind of roughly double to, to almost thirty trillion dollars. Uh, and so, the you know, for us, in, in the way that we look at the portfolio, we don't lack for opportunities uh, in in which to deploy uh, the capital that we have, um, and and the another. Aspect of the way that we actively manage the portfolios is we take a long-term view of valuation. So, um, kind of within that rough doubling that uh, we believe is going to accrue to these um, these fundamental technologies, these disruptive technology platforms, mm-hmm. there's probably going to be a lot of volatility along the way. In fact, I'd say it's almost a certainty, and and that volatility could be down or it could be up, uh, and and if you look from our perspective. HISTORICALLY, OUR FIVE-YEAR PRICE TARGETS, WHICH WE HAVE FOR ALL OF OUR POSITIONS, ACTUALLY AREN'T NEARLY VOLATILE hmm. AS as THE hmm. MARKET'S VOLATILITY. SO so WE TEND TO TRADE COUNTER TO MARKET MOVEMENTS uh, IN THE INTERIM. A STOCK TRADES UP ON EARNINGS. WE TEND TO uh, SELL IT DOWN. IF IT TRADES DOWN ON EARNINGS, WE trend, TEND TO BUY IT BECAUSE OFTEN THAT EARNINGS EVENT DOESN'T AFFECT THE WAY THAT WE THINK THAT THE COMPANY IS GOING TO LOOK FIVE YEARS FROM NOW.
3: AS YOU'VE JUST DONE WITH Palin- for example and it's interesting 14 trillion divided by how many companies do you think and and how many would you get into because it's interesting how you go between like on the low end just above 20 on the high end just above 50 in terms of how many names you own do you think as that 14 trillion opportunity gets bigger and bigger you will just add more and more names
6: it it depends on the cycle so if you look historically the way we've managed the portfolios is is the number of names has concentrated when um our style is more out of favor and then tended to grow when we've diversified the holding base as people suddenly believe that we know what's going to happen in the future uh and 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 so again like we have a um i think generally even you know joe talking about how uh well known and famous we are that MEANS TO SUGGEST TO ME THAT A LOT OF PEOPLE ARE FOCUSING ON THE SAME KINDS OF THINGS THAT WE'RE FOCUSING ON. Uh, AND SO um, WE ARE uh, MORE CAUTIOUS IN SOME OF OUR POSITIONING. Uh, AND and THEN AS uh, WE FALL OUT OF FAVOR, WHICH INEVITABLY WE WILL, um, THEN LIKELY THE PORTFOLIO WILL CONCENTRATE TO SOME DEGREE. Um, THAT SAID, THERE IS A LOT OF KIND OF INCREMENTAL BUSINESS CREATION IN the spaces that we're focused upon. If you if you rewound the qu- clock five years ago and ask people about the basically enterprise software space and, and the software as a service space, there is no way that somebody would correctly right. predict the number of valuable names that would be, you know, very liquid and really interesting businesses right. addressing that opportunity. And, and we think that's going to play out across the technology
0: platforms that we're investing.
1: And then finally, we wrap things up for the week by speaking with Noah Davis, a specialist in the post-war and contemporary art department at Christie's, about the auction house's decision to start accepting
7: crypto as payment. That's a really interesting and very loaded question. (laughs) Uh, Non-fungible token-based artwork uh, is essentially artwork without objecthood right? We, we're very familiar with uh, paintings and sculptures at Christie's. Our audience is very familiar with art that can be hung on the wall and experienced in the round. And this is our first foray into offering something that is completely intangible. Uh, it does not have any object, objectively speaking. Um, what you're bidding on is, is a non-fungible token. So a long sequence of numbers and letters constitutes a code. Uh, that lands in your digital wallet, um, establishing its scarcity and its uniqueness. Um, but the code is represented on our website and in the mind's eye of our audience um, by an artwork that, that Mike created. Um, it's called Every Day is the First 5,000 Days. Um, it's constituted of every single image in his ongoing 13-year daily journey to create a new digital image um, every day of his life. And so it's this very, very comprehensive, monolithic artwork um, that we're selling. Um, And it's just a a brand new first for us.
1: So you probably get this question a lot, but also probably people ask it, like, what's to stop me from just, you know, screenshotting the, uh, the code and telling people I bought or screenshotting the image and telling people I bought it? Nothing,
7: no, absolutely nothing. But the image is not the artwork. The image is—it's important to remember that the image is a, a representation. It's a—it's an abstraction. Right. Right. Um, and the actual artwork itself is completely intangible.
4: So, I mean, this raises a lot of issues, Noah. Just I guess uh, about what art is, and more importantly, how art is evolving. Uh, there are a lot of people who will look at this, see it as a gimmick. A lot of people will look at it and see it as the future. Um, are we going to move to a stage here with these more type of ephemeral type of uh, art? displays or whatever we want to call it, that this becomes a little bit more of the norm? Is this what art collectors are looking for?
7: Who knows? I I don't think that the broader art (laughs) collecting community, at least that we have access to right now, is desperate for NFTs to take over. Nobody is trying to assassinate paintings and sculpture. Um, (laughs) But we're also at this point where yeah. where people are asking really provocative questions using nfts and and also other ways of of interrogating the meaningfulness of visual art you i think of yeah. maurizio catalan selling the banana at art basel very famously right before coronavirus um when it was literally a banana duct taped to a wall um, and people were lining up to pay more than hundreds of thousands of dollars for it so um, it's the same sort of question, or at least a question from the same corner of the the art universe.
3: No, what I'm interested in is also the sort of captive audience you have here. Not a. Romain makes an interesting point about perhaps art collectors getting involved, but at the moment you have an awful lot of people who love the asset of cryptocurrencies. The assets want to reinvest their easily won bitcoin fortune if you happen to have dabbled early enough and put it back into some sort of refocus point are you are you welcoming them with open arms how are you are going to sell this potentially taking ether is this a whole new area that these people want to spend on
7: absolutely we are so we are way outside of our comfort zone right now already of course naturally christies has been around for for hundreds of years i would have never predicted we would be accepting cryptocurrency uh, on a major sale, um, but we want to make this as easy for the audience out there as possible. They are, they are used to transacting in ether uh, in the NFT based artwork collecting world. And so doing it just was a natural uh, inclination for us. I mean, it's something that could potentially uh, leave more money on the the bottom line for for everyone involved. So we have a fiduciary responsibility to our seller to, to make sure that if we have the opportunity to get a better result, we pursue it. And this is just a, the perfect situation where we have a seller who is very uh, literate when it comes to cryptocurrency and very used to receiving payment in crypto. Um, and we have an audience who wants to pay using a cryptocurrency potentially. So it's just a perfect uh, situation.
1: No, uh, we just have about a minute left, but it feels like we're in a moment where people are just really into buying stuff. And I mean, there's art, there's NFTs, people are buying a lot, spending a lot of money on basketball cards, like the actual old style physical ones, also digital ones. What's going on? Why this sudden urge to like uh, sort of spend on things and collectibles from your perspective?
7: Well, people have always wanted to collect, right? That's one of of the impulses that makes us human is a desire to acquire things. And I think in in lockdown, probably a lot of people's uh, energy towards that activity is is really encouraged. I mean, you you have a very limited uh, real life compared to the virtual life that you lead. Yeah. And there's something to be said about the virtual nature of this asset, right? Yeah. We've all been spending the last year uh, plus now, um, and we're looking towards more time spent in this in this virtual parallel universe. So yeah. Th- yeah. that gap between reality and virtual experience, lived experience versus virtual experience becomes a lot more fuzzy. Um, and so it's, it's really yeah. interesting and, and easy to see that, that you could equate real life and virtual life right now.
1: And that's it for what you missed this week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.
0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the future investor,